Lord, we thank you that you are the God of the universe, that you have done some wondrous things for our lives, and you have made great plans for us, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you have bestowed on each and every one of us. We pray that you'll work in our hearts and that you'll help us to learn from your word as as it is preached today, Lord. And I pray that you will strengthen me and give me the right words to say. In Jesus' name, amen. It's actually been a long time. We're actually finishing up Hebrews this week and next. It's actually, this is sort of a two-part message that we're working on. It's Hebrews chapter 13. It's the final chapter of the book. I know it's been sort of a long road going through the book. And as we've looked at the book, we've, saw, we've seen who Jesus is. He is expressed image of the Father. He is the creator of the universe. He is our great high priest. He is the risen king. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And he is the firstborn son of the Father. This is just to name a few of the things the book of Hebrews tells us. All the time the author of Hebrews is telling us who Jesus is, what he did, and the great cloud of witnesses testifying to his authenticity, he punctuates his messages with exhortations to Pay attention to Jesus. Watch him. Imitate him. Focus our eyes exclusively on him. And in all ways, make it our life's goal to become like Christ. When we finally get to chapter 13, we see less than 20 verses telling us what we need to be doing to make our lives line up with Christ. One might think that this is an afterthought, except for the fact that the author has in mind one crucial fact of life. Right thinking leads to right living. Jesus put it this way in Luke 6, 43-45. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from the briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So for the past 12 chapters, the author has been giving us the tools to, as Paul put in Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now we get to chapter 13, and here the author gives us guidelines to follow in order to express our transformed thinking in a way that pleases God. 
And I'm going to step away from my notes for just a second because the Lord gave me an illustration. When we look at, it, it happened this morning after I had finished my message, but when you look at how children grow up and they start coloring in a coloring book and they're really young, they just scribble all over the page. They don't color inside the lines. And as they get older, they get progressively more and more, they color inside the lines, but they still go outside the lines until they get to an age where their coordination is such that they can actually color inside the lines. And really, that is a lot about how our Christian lives should line up. Is that when we're young Christians, we do sort of color outside the lines a lot. But as we grow, we need to color inside the lines. And these guidelines are those kinds of lines that we're supposed to be coloring inside of. So as we look at these guidelines that he has given us here, I want us to think about how our lives line up with them. This chapter actually is broken into three sections. The first section is verses 1 to 6, which deal with general guidelines for Christian living. The second section, verses 7 to 19, deal with guidelines on church leadership and doctrine. And the third section is a benediction and closing. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. So I'm going to read Hebrews 13, 1 to 6. Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Hebrews 13 starts with this command. Let the love of the brethren continue. In the monk's Greek interlinear translation, the command is worded, brotherly love must continue. I like the wording here because it makes it clear. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Brotherly love must continue. The first guideline is to love fellow Christians. It is no accident that the first guideline is the command and that it is that brotherly love must continue. Francis Schaeffer in his book, The Mark of the Christian, cites John 13 33 to 35, as a primary thing that marks us as Christians. 
John 13, 33 to 35, say this. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, as I said to the Jews. Now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is what Francis Schaeffer said. He said, this passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label Christians, not just in one era or in one locality, but at all times and all places until Jesus returns. It's important for us to understand this. John himself, in 1 John, also wrote this about love. John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. He says this, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passed away, or passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother, is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me paraphrase what John is getting at here. If you claim to be Christian and you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. The darkness has blinded your eyes. We cannot claim to be a Christian and hate our brothers. It's as simple as that. John is very clear. If you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. And if you're walking in darkness, you're not a Christian. That is very important for us to understand. That walking in the light means that we should be marked by love for the brethren. Jesus came to earth to show his great love. If we are to live the transformed life, we must also allow his love to transform our hearts so that we may love others in the same way. That is why brotherly love must continue. And that is why this is the first and most important guideline in this list. The second guideline 
show hospitality is found in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. If we look at Paul's letters to the church, we see Paul thank them many times for their hospitality. This was a part and parcel with the church back then. And if I may comment, it should be part and parcel with the church today, but it's not. Also, this was not just having a friendly attitude towards Paul. They took him into their homes. They further showed hospitality by sending money to help support him in his ministry. Paul's letter to the Philippians shows one example of his thankfulness for their Christian hospitality. Philippians 2, 25-29 say this, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Here's a man who put his life on the line. He was sent out from the Philippian church to help Paul. And he almost died as a result of this. And Paul is thanking them for this courage of this man, but also the willingness of these people to send a man of that caliber to meet his needs. Notice the second part of Hebrews 13.2. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. It is very likely that the author was looking back to Genesis 18. 2 to 15, where Abraham showed hospitality to his heavenly visitors. Abraham went to great lengths to show them hospitality. He sent for water to wash their feet. Sarah had to prepare and bake the bread while he went to the flock to pick, up a, pick out a tender choice calf to have prepared for the meal. He didn't just say, hey, you want me to call down to the local takeout for something? Or maybe, hey, I got some leftovers, you want me to warm them up for you? No. Abraham and Sarah put effort into showing hospitality to these strangers. Notice they're also strangers. And it's obvious they didn't know that these strangers were angels. At least not at the beginning. So far, in our guidelines, we have love fellow Christians and show hospitality 
The third guideline, minister to those in prison and to those who are mistreated is found in verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Notice how he is linking us to them. He is saying, we are also in the body. In this case, the author is speaking of those mistreated for their faith. In our country, we do not see imprisonment for matters of faith yet. But we see criticism and ridicule every day directed at people of faith who are entering the political arena or any public service. Let's not forget that this is not the only country in the world. There are many who are imprisoned, mistreated, and even killed for their faith. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I personally live in pain every day. Many of us here do. Especially those of us who are feeling our age. <laughs> we know what it is like to have some part of our body scream out in suffering. It distracts us. It burdens us. Paul is saying that we should feel the suffering of others just as deeply. Before we move on, I want to say there are many in prison in our country for crimes they did commit. But they found Christ in prison. Right now, they are living a testimony of God's grace and mercy in front of those who hate them for the freedom they have found. We need to remember that we have all committed the great crime of treason against God and deserve an eternity of suffering. But God's grace was given to us. Let's remember to keep all who suffer for their faith in Christ, no matter what the circumstances were that brought them to him. We should be praying at the least for those who suffer for Christ. So far we see love fellow Christians, show hospitality, minister to those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. The fourth guideline is hold marriage as honorable and keep the sexual relationship pure. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. 
The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. The word honor in this verse means to consider marriage of great value. 1 Corinthians 3.12 in the New American Standard says this, Now if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. The word translated honor in Hebrews 13.4 is the same word that is translated precious in 1 Corinthians. In other words, the marriage relationship is to be our precious treasure. And we must be very careful to protect it. We live in a culture that does not value marriage. Looks at the concept of marriage and fidelity as old-fashioned and worthy of ridicule. The matters are getting so bad that our culture is attacking the concept of gender differentiation altogether. This is nothing new. Ancient Greek culture considered certain behavior to be extolled. Ancient Rome considered promiscuity normal. And God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their behavior. There's a reason why God commands faithfulness in the marriage relationship. Ephesians 5 shows that the marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. I want to read Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Marriage is the closest thing we have to personally living out a relationship that demonstrates the relationship between Christ and the church. Time after time after time, God tells Israel that their idolatry is spiritual adultery. God created man and woman for a marriage relationship. He takes that relationship very seriously. And he expects us to take it seriously too. So far we have love fellow Christians show hospitality, minister to those in prison and to those who are mistreated and hold marriage as honorable and to keep the sexual relationship pure. The fifth and final guideline is to be content with your financial status. First part of Hebrew 13, Hebrews 13.5 13, says this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. Notice that this guideline continues by telling us God's promise is why we should be content. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, 
nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? There are many Old Testament verses that repeat this promise. And I'm just going to read one, Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. In Luke 16.13, Jesus tells us, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The problem with putting a high value on getting wealth is that it can lead to trusting in the wealth and not in the Lord. Jesus told a parable about that. In Luke 12, 16 to 21, we read this. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. There will be there, I will storm all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods. Laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. Now, who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's saying something very important here in that it's not that we don't look at wealth and say that it's, that it's you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with, with wealth. It's trusting in wealth that's, that is so bad. And it is not, God gives us things a lot of times to have that we may give to others. As a matter of fact, Paul said that in Ephesians 4 where he says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands that he may have to give to those who are in need. In other words, God says your motive for acquiring things is to let it flow through your hands to those who are in need. Be rich toward God. And here's the thing. Every time we give away, God gives back abundantly above what we've given away. You truly want to acquire wealth? Give it away. What God wants for us is to cry out with all of our heart what David said in Psalm 73, 25, to 26, he says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our desire, like Jacob should be, I will not let you go unless you bless me. We should be clinging to him and not to anything else. We should be seeking to make him our treasure. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your love, your grace, and all that you have given to us, Lord. You have given us so much more than wealth. You have given us your son. You have given us yourself. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand just how great that treasure is. That you will help us to truly make you our treasure. That we may consider you to be more valuable and more to be sought after than anything else that is in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are having a meeting after the service. Uh, is Jeremy here? Not yet. Okay. I'll let him run that. Talk to you. Um, see you later.